0: Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Joelle Pitts. Joelle is the Executive Director of the R.J. Leonard Foundation, an organization located in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Philadelphia. Welcome, Joelle. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, you're welcome. I'm very excited that there's an organization from Pennsylvania that we're interviewing. I think we've done maybe one or two before, but welcome. You're in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, which isn't too far from Aging Out Institute.
1: No, not too far. We serve two suburbs right outside of Philadelphia.
0: Well, terrific. Why don't we start the interview? If you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself, your own background, And what led you to working with youth in the foster care system?
1: Sure. So I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I am the executive director for the R.J. Leonard Foundation. I've spent my entire career working with young people who are experiencing homelessness or young people who have been impacted by the foster care system. I've done that in a few different capacities from working directly on the floor at residential facilities, in a clinical capacity as a therapist, and also in leadership roles. I've been involved with mentoring programs, independent living programs, housing programs, emergency shelters, and street outreach programs.
0: That's like the breadth of (laughs) of all the services. (laughs) That's (laughs) a great experience.
1: I've had my hands in a lot of different pots, which I think is Given me a really unique perspective now being at the R.J. Leonard Foundation and working with young people on the other side of things when they have aged out of those systems. And I think my connection to the foster care system for me, it started at a young age. My grandmother, she worked at a girls' group home in New Jersey when I was growing up. And she was what I would refer to as kind of like the house mom. So she was responsible for making sure everyone got to school and all of their doctor's appointments and being the Italian grandmother that she was, making sure everyone was well-fed and had delicious <laughs> meals every day. And when I was growing up, it was back in the day where it was okay to bring your granddaughter to work with you at the group home when you were running a few errands. So like at a really young age, I had experiences and conversations with the adults in my life that opened up my eyes to see that there were families that were really different than mine. And there were people who couldn't live at home with their parents, whether it was a safety concern or their parents just couldn't care for them. Learning that at a really young age, I now see as an adult and as a social worker, the impact that really had on me and how it kind of guided my path towards working with kids in foster care.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. I myself was in foster care. Okay. But until I went into the system, I really was oblivious, of course, of that. Yeah, You know, I lived in a very small town in the mountains of North Carolina at the time. It's apple country. Mm -hmm. And so we would have the apple picker migrants that would come through. And so they'd be with us seasonally, but they were groups of families, right? And so that was about the extent of seeing young people who had challenging situations. That was the extent of it. So I was oblivious to the foster care system. And when I went into it, it was really eye-opening to understand how many young people, even in the country area of North Carolina, were being impacted by family issues and being put into the system.
1: Yeah. For me, outside of my grandmother working at this girls' group home and having exposure to these girls, I would have never known that in my neighborhood or the schools that I went to, even though those young people were there all around me. But I didn't know that.
0: Then what led you to the R.J. Leonard Foundation? What was kind of your career path to that?
1: Like I said, a lot of my experience before this was with organizations that were working with young people who were in the foster care system or were experiencing homelessness and were moving towards, especially when I was overseeing some of our independent living programs, you know, moving towards aging out of foster care. And although I loved doing that work, I was always very intrigued by what the R.J. Leonard Foundation was doing. We partnered with them at other organizations I worked with and referred young people to them. And the idea of being able to From my experience in the area that I work in, being one of the few to maybe the only providers that are really focused on working with people on the other side of this who have already aged out of foster care, who already have lost a lot of those supports, was really exciting.
0: When did you begin working with the foundation?
1: So I've been with the foundation now for three years.
0: Three years. And did you go into it in the executive director role?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Okay. Yeah. And how long has the organization been in existence? Since
1: 2009.
0: And what is it that the foundation does? This is an assumption I made right before I understood the wide variety of organizations that are out there. When I heard foundation, I just assumed, oh, they give money, right? We get that a lot. (laughs) So help us understand maybe where the name comes from and what it is that you actually do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which we do. We do give some money, but that's not all we do. But we do get that a lot. (laughs) So the RJ Leonard Foundation is a privately funded nonprofit. And what we do is we refer to it as a fellowship. So we provide young people who have aged out of foster care in Bucks and Montgomery counties in Pennsylvania, a fellowship. So mentoring is at the core of what we do. We work with young people who are interested in being connected with a mentor, and we work with them on achieving their educational and career goals that they have. When the foundation was launched in 2009 by our founder, Joe Leonard, who is still on the board and very active in the foundation, she knew she wanted to start a foundation in memory of her father, who is Robert James Leonard. He had a passion for education that he instilled in her. Her career is really working with young adults who are transitioning from high school and college. so working with this population was a passion of hers. She had an experience working with a young person who was aging out of foster care, who had just such incredible potential. And it really opened her eyes to this whole population who was here in the community that she lived in, that she was unaware of, that had all of these barriers to being able to pursue their post-secondary education and career goals. So for her, it was a moment. She wanted to do this foundation in her father's memory, and that is what she did. So she started the foundation, and one of the things that really drives the foundation and was one of the sparks for her was learning that only 3% of young people who age out of the foster care system will earn their college degree. So the foundation's really driven by this idea that we really believe in the power of education in that giving these young people a much different opportunity. So we want to be one of the reasons that those statistics start to change. We want to help young people go to college, complete their degrees, reach whatever career goals they have, whether that's going to college or some workforce development program, but giving them the supports that they need to have the same opportunities as their peers in their community. So I was talking about like mentoring is the core of what we do. I think we also do mentoring a little bit differently. When we recruit our mentors at the foundation, the message we send to them is, this is a lifelong relationship. And we explain that to them by saying, if you are a young person who has aged out of the foster care system, you have had a ton of adults in and out of your life. You have had caseworkers and IL workers and mentors and foster parents and staff at group homes. You've been through it. You've had those people in and out, and what they really need is that permanency. They need that community, that person that they can call in the middle of the night when something goes wrong. So, we are looking for people that really want to welcome these young people into their lives and their communities and be there for them for the long haul. So, we ask that it's people that aren't looking for a short term mentoring situation, but really want to build a lifelong relationship with a young
0: person. How many mentors do you have? I'm not asking like over the length of time that the organization has been in existence, but let's just say on average, how many mentors do you have and how many youth are they serving?
1: So our mentors are all working with one fellow. We currently right now have 17 and we tend to stay around there. I'd say somewhere in between the like 15 to 20. So it's a small foundation. It's small, but impactful and very individualized as well.
0: Okay. And how do you find the youth? You had said that youth that are interested, mm-hmm. right? So they're opting in, mm-hmm. it sounds like, to the program. So how do you get referrals for the young people?
1: What's funny is one of our largest referral sources is our current fellows.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: well, that's good, though. It is. It's, I think it's something <laughs> we're very proud of. It says a lot about how they feel about their experience with the foundation. There is a lot of word of mouth between fellows sharing with their networks of people. We also have relationships with children and youth in the two counties that we serve. So they know that we are a resource for a young person as they're transitioning out. And we also maintain relationships with the two local providers who are doing independent living services for young people in foster care. So making sure that they all know that we're a resource and a program that they can transition a young person into before they age out of care as well, too.
0: So the local providers that you're partnering with, I think this is something that is good to highlight because there are a lot of organizations out there supporting these young people, but not every organization does everything. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like, tell me if I'm wrong, but you're partnering with independent living services organizations that maybe provide services that you don't have, but you provide the mentoring that they might not provide. Are you filling gaps for each other? I
1: think really that it's not that we're filling gaps for them, but when their time is done with that young person, we can step in. So there can be a smooth transition where they don't have to go a period of time without services. So I think a good example is both of the providers in these counties provide mentoring programs as a part of their independent living services. But those things might end when it's time for them to age out of care. So we can step in at that point and we can match them with a mentor or something else we've done is we had a young person who had a really wonderful relationship with their mentor and their time with this organization was done, but their time together was not done in their eyes. So we said, well, you guys could join the foundation, continue this relationship and just transfer the you know, we can provide all of these other services for you as well, too. And you guys get to continue to be with each other.
0: Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I think that's an approach that other organizations could consider. Yeah. You know, mentoring organizations, if you're looking to find sources for your referrals, that just seems like a natural kind of organic thing where they can just continue on.
1: Yeah. And I'd say those are some of the relationships that have worked the best they've built that trust. They have that core to the relationship. So now as they're aging out of care and going to be facing a lot of barriers and a lot of change in their life, they already have a person that they know and trust.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, do you partner with other organizations that work with young people in say, like transitional living, where you might provide some mentoring and they're providing the living coaching and so forth. I'm just thinking out, going back to the idea of partnering with other organizations. I'm wondering if you do any of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some of our young people are in different housing programs or transitioning out of different housing programs. So we would work pretty closely with those organizations. And we also work with a lot of community providers that provide services to our young people or might be able to help them out if they needed something with food or certain scholarships. So we partner with them to meet some of their basic needs as well.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. So when you're working with these young people, do they start with you at the age of 18? So the
1: beauty of being privately funded is that we have a lot of flexibility and we have the ability to work with young people who haven't aged out of care or they have aged out of care. We don't really have to cap the age that they come into the program So we make sure that all of these providers know that if there is a young person who's about to age out of care, who might be 17, 18 years old, and they're interested in services, they can be referred to the program. The majority of them tend to have aged out of foster care already. We tend to see a theme of they're a young person, they've aged out of foster care. They've said, I'm not really interested in any services right now. I've had enough of services. (laughs) I've had services my whole life. I want to kind of give this a go myself. And they step away from it, and then they might realize, well, you know what, I want to go back to school, or maybe I could use some additional support. And we tend to get referrals, I'd say like mid-20s are a lot of our fellows when they first come into the program.
0: That's not uncommon across the board. Young people, like you said, they're like, I'm done. I just, I need to try life on my own, right? And I would be done too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, and then they realize, you know, maybe this support would really be helpful. And I am glad for the ones that make the choice to find a program like yours to come back. And get that little extra support that they might need.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also a testament to the independent living providers who were there for them. A lot of these young people, even if they age out and walk away and say, I don't want any services, when they reach a point where they feel like they need some support or they need to think about doing things differently, they often reach out to those people. And because we maintain the relationship with them, they go, wait, there is an organization that will still work with you and connect them in that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is there a cutoff age for your organization? Like they can't come back past the age of 30 or something like that? There's really not.
1: Okay. And I'd say, so most of them are coming in, like I said, around early, mid-20s. But some of them are staying with, you know, we have fellows who have been matched now for eight and nine years, and we still consider them a part of the foundation. They might be at a different stage in their life. But we also recognize that we don't put a cap or present it in that way because we also recognize that a young person in their mid-20s who is just determining they want to go back to school has a lot of barriers and it's going to be really, really complicated for them. So it might take them longer and it might be two steps forward and one step back. So we want to be able to hang in there for the long run.
0: So the young people who are staying longer and that you are still considered fellows they obviously continue to have the support of the mentor and the organization. Do you could provide support to the mentors themselves? Yeah. Throughout, regardless of how long the young person stays. Yeah.
1: So it might be helpful for me to kind of describe how we do the support for the mentor fellow team. Yeah. So when a young person is matched, we have our process of matching them. It's really important to us that our fellows have a voice in that process and that it's really someone that they genuinely feel like they're going to connect to and want to talk to, because if not, it's never going to work. So they're a part of that process. Once they're matched, we have a program director. Her name's Susan Coyle, and she is the main support person for the teams. So she provides them with I would say, the case management, independent living, all of those things, the skill development, connecting them with community resources, and then also provides the training and support for our mentors. So we offer our mentors training in all types of different topics from just understanding the child welfare system to trauma-informed care and understanding community resources and how to help young people develop SMART goals. So we provide trainings of resources to our mentors. We also offer group supervision for them. We offer opportunities for them to connect to other mentors who have been doing this for a long time. So they have peer resources as well. So that is always offered to our mentors and their access to Susan as the program director is also a resource for them. And then for our fellows, When they are active and working on really specific career and educational goals, they are also eligible for scholarships and financial assistance. We provide our fellows with scholarships in a few different buckets. The first, of course, being educational scholarships, so that can cover anything that would, you know. We say to them, what are the barriers to you being in school and staying in school? And anything that kind of falls into that bucket that we can help them with, we do. So that might mean they are able to go to school because of the Fostering Independence tuition waiver, but they have some additional costs and we can help them out with those things or it's textbooks or a parking pass or, you know, I need a new computer Another bucket for us is transportation. The communities that we're serving don't have great public transportation. So not having a car, a reliable car, and being able to fix that car when it inevitably breaks is a barrier for these young people. So we help them with that. We help them to get cars. We help them to fix them. Or, you know, you're driving to work that day and you hit a pothole, they can call us. And we provide financial assistance that often for us, especially in recent years with COVID, has looked like stipends for housing and utilities. We might have a young person who is really interested in finishing their degree because they have to pay their rent. They're only able to take, you know, one class per semester. And we might go to them and say, well, what's it going to take for you to be able to take three classes? Because we know the longer they are in school, the less likely they are to be able to finish. So we want to speed it up for them. They might say, well, I need help paying my rent. So we might say, okay, well, for this semester, we're going to give you a monthly stipend towards your rent. Cut back on your hours at work. Pick up two more classes. That can also be emergency food, utility, phone bills, things like that, all the things that come up that would get in the way of them staying in school. Our last bucket is social and cultural enrichment opportunities. For us, this is the fun bonus bucket. This is us acknowledging that a young person who has grown up in the foster care system has not had a lot of the experiences that some of their peers may have. They may not have been able to afford to play sports or go on a vacation or do some of those things, and we want to provide them opportunities for that as well. For some of our fellows, that might look like, you know, they're parenting, and they might want to sign their daughter up for dance class, and that's not something they can do. So we can help with that. We use this often to send young people, their kids, to summer camp to be able to give them those opportunities one year we, and we just did it again this year, we just had our gala, which is our largest fundraiser last week. One thing we fundraised for for this year and back in 2017 was Dare to Dream Enriching Experiences is what we called it. And we sold shares at the gala that people purchased so we can send our fellows on vacations. So before the gala, we went to them and we said, if you could go anywhere, where would you go? Magic wand. Magic wand. What would you do? Who would you bring? And we presented to our donors and our supporters and said, these are young people who may have never been on a vacation. They may have never left the state of Pennsylvania. These are experiences that many of you have had that have probably opened your eyes to a whole world that you had no idea existed before. And we want to do that for them too. So we raised some money. We're going to send all of our fellows on vacation this year, which is pretty cool. That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I love it. Yeah.
1: It's really exciting.
0: Now, what would you say, because you said you talked to the young people about the barriers they face, what are the most common barriers for achieving their educational goals?
1: For many of the fellows, when they first come to us, it is the story we hear far too often is, yeah, I'd love to go to school, but I can't do that. I'm in survival mode. I have to pay my bills. I have to put a roof over my head. I don't have anyone to help me with these things. No, I can't do that. So often it is helping them to take a step back. We can help them to explore the financial resources that they may have to be able to go back to school that they might not know about. Or if they're not eligible for some of those things, that's where it comes in, where we're able to provide scholarships and things like that for them to be able to do it. I think another big barrier that we see all the time is once they're in it and they're doing it, when you're living a life where you're almost on your own, things come up that are so small to someone else that could really be life-changing for them. The example I often give people when I'm talking about the fellows is you're driving to class and you blow your tire. If you don't have the extra money in your bank account to be able to fix that immediately, you're not making it to class, or you're not able to get your kids to daycare, or you might not be able to get to work, and you're going to have to call out at that point. You could lose a job. If you lose your job, you're not worried about whether or not you're going to class. Like you have to find a job. So, the things that are so little that can be catastrophic for them.
0: Yeah, that's a great example, especially since so many cars now, they won't let you replace just one tire. You have to get a whole new set. Yeah, it's expensive. It is.
1: That just triggered for me this idea. We talked to them a lot about this idea of social capital and how if you don't have a mechanic to call that you trust in that moment too, even though you might have that little bit of money set aside or that money that you're going to pull from a different bucket to be able to take care of this tire, if you go to a mechanic who's going to take advantage of you and overcharge you or not fix something correctly, those things happen to them all the time. I think of myself growing up. I didn't think about it as social capital, but I grew up in a community where I felt like the adults surrounding me had my back. They believed in me. They thought I was going to be really successful. I could call them if I needed something. I could trust them to support me and follow through with things. Whereas these young people have moved around so much in their lives where they might not have just established that for people or the people that were in their lives didn't do that for them. They didn't follow through. It, it was them against the world. So this idea that one of our hopes with saying to our mentors that this is a lifelong relationship where you welcome them into your life, you share your social capital with them, we want to show them a different community. We want to show them that, no, there are people and you can rely on them and they're going to follow through and you're going to have this mechanic and we're going to connect you with that person. But at some point, they're going to be your person and you know, you're going to call them and know that you can trust them. I feel like we use the term independent living a lot with kids aging out of foster care. And it kind of just also instills in them this like, I have to be independent. I have to do this on my own. Like, I haven't been able to rely on people. So, it's pride and this independence. And I say to them all the time, can you think about it as interdependence? Not one of these people has done this on their own. I am not here in this role because I just pulled myself up and did it all by myself. I did it with relationships and connections and other people. So helping them to have an experience of a world where they feel like they too can have that and trust people and have people that genuinely care about them and that it's okay to access that too, that everyone around you has done that to get where they are.
0: Yeah. The idea of social capital, I think, and it's twofold. One, it's building your own social capital, Mm -hmm. but the people who are supporting you, the mentors and others in your life who have social capital of their own tapping into them and being willing to ask for that kind of help too. I think like you're saying, some young people feel like fiercely, I have to do this on my own, but it's okay to ask for help, right? And there are people out there who are willing to tap into their own social capital to find somebody who can assist you.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really valid that they feel that way given their life experiences. When we track outcomes, we track whether or not a fellow has accessed social capital. And then the next level of that is, have they accessed it independently? And for us, the reason we track it in that way is, are we doing our job of connecting them to community and community resources? And then at some point, are they really feeling that connection to that community and that confidence to kind of do that
0: themselves and
1: not have to do that through us?
0: Right. Now, help me understand, you talked about your scholarships and the different ways you can support young people to overcoming the barriers to achieving their educational goals. How much of that is overlapped with the mentoring experience? How much does the mentor do to help the young people achieve their goals versus the folks on staff there at your organization? I imagine it's a partnership, but I'm trying to just get made a clearer picture of how far does the mentor go with this work with them?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a partnership. But for us, we say it's all about our mentors. Our mentors (laughs) are fabulous. When the foundation started and Joe saw this as a need in the community, the first thing she did was she rallied her troops. She pulled together all of her social capital and she was like, hey, guys, this is happening here in our community. We have these resources. We're here doing this for our own children. We need to step up and do this for them. And she did that and she pulled together a really great group of people who very grassroots, started this organization and we're just mentoring fellows. And they quickly saw that even with Wonderful Mentors, there are these financial barriers. They began the fundraising process of things and building that up where we were able to provide the scholarships in addition to that. So I think that our scholarships are really important because those barriers are real. But I think that the most important part of what we do is that fellow mentoring relationship. Our hope is that that mentor becomes, that's who they call when they face those barriers. They don't call us. They know that we're there, but they're going to call their mentor. That's their person. They're going to talk it through. They're going to help them problem solve. And then... Whether it's the fellow mentor, both of them are going to reach out to myself or Susan and say, "Hey, we need some help. We're kind of stuck, so we can talk that through them. And then when they are requesting financial assistance, that comes through the mentor. So that way we know that they worked through this. Here are the solutions they came up with, and here is what they're presenting they need in regards to financial assistance.
0: OK. And the mentors are volunteers, I gather.:
1: Yes. Yeah, so our foundation is, if we're small. Susan and I are the only employees and everyone else is volunteers. So that is all of our mentors. We have an incredible board who is very, very dedicated to this cause and is very active. Half of them are mentors (laughs) themselves in addition (laughs) to being a board member. And then we also have volunteers that help us with things like fundraising or, you know, we have two fundraising events a year. And we do a few drives throughout the year. We do a back-to-school drive and a Thanksgiving dinner and a holiday wish list. So we have some people in the community that help us with that as
0: well. Wow, that's wonderful. So moving on to the career goals, because you had mentioned that you help the young people achieve career goals Mm -hmm. as well. How does that work into the mentoring and any other maybe financial support you might have?
1: Yeah, so for some of our fellows, it may be that they're Not interested in going to college, but they want to attend a trade school or they want to get a certificate that will allow them to get a promotion at their current job. So we do spend a lot of time with them helping them to they've all had to have jobs to survive and to have income. So we really hope that we're able to help them to think about, well, if you didn't have to think about it that way, what would your career look like? Whether that is after college or after a program that you're in. So helping them to see that, like, no, you can have a career. You can have those dreams. You can focus on those things. So for some of them, it's that they're not going to college and we're working with them actively on their career goals right now and helping them to reach those. And then for some of them, it is, okay, so I'm done. Now what? And what does that look like? And I think that a big role in that is Jo Leonard. Her personal business that she has does career coaching for young people. So she's a wonderful asset for us in that way. When we have young people who are really stuck, whether it's figuring out what they want to do career-wise or maybe what they want to do in school or what they want to major in. So she'll step in and do some of that coaching
0: as well. Yeah, I think the trades is a great opportunity right now in particular. There's so much of a need for young people to go into the trades and there's money to be made.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a lot of them, too, they've talked about feeling this pressure of like, oh, well, you know, I'm in foster care and I'm never going to finish college and like what that feels like for them. But I feel like in recent years, there's been more of a push towards like, no, there are all of these other things you can do as well, too, that are really exciting and you can have a really great life and a wonderful career in. So it's allowed them to open their mind about that as well.
0: Yeah. I asked just because of the topic here, but have you heard of the MicroWorks Foundation? No. It's Micro, the guy from Dirty Jobs, right? Mm-hmm. He started a foundation where they give scholarships to help young people go into the trades. Okay. So something I'll just throw out yeah. there for yourself and for others who might have young people who want to go in that direction is called a work ethic scholarship. And so it's an application process that they have to go through. I'm not exactly sure what the cycle is, you know, the dates and all, but it's something to look into.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I love what you're doing. I think that the relationship aspect is so important. And I hear that interview after interview after interview about how critical it is to have caring, supportive adults to be there for the young people as they're going into adulthood. And as you say, not just for a year, (laughs) you know, somebody they can rely on for the long term. I think that that is so important. And the research shows that as well, that having that caring, supportive adult, is probably the primary key factor in young people succeeding as they transition into adulthood.
1: Absolutely, and I think that for us, when we talk about our mentors and how special and wonderful they are, we're really selective about the people that we choose to be in that role because we understand the importance of it being the right person for these people. They don't have to have experience or an understanding of the child welfare system, but they have to be the right person that will understand how heavy that experience is and what these young people have been through and the level of dedication it takes to build trusting and safe relationship with a young person who has experienced multiple traumas throughout their lives and who has good reason to not trust you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right.
1: It takes a special person to really be able to understand that and be dedicated to that relationship in that way.
0: I think there's a misunderstanding when you have somebody who volunteers for something like this and they think, oh, the kids are volunteering for this program. They're opting in. They're going to be all gung-ho. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not necessarily the case. <laughs> and I think that we use
1: the term trauma-informed care and people are like, yeah, I get it. I understand. I, it's such a horrible, broken system and they've just been through so much and they're so resilient. And it's just like, yeah, it is. But like relationships are really complicated for them and it's hard work and we owe it to them to, you know, hang in there. Give them the opportunity to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a mindset too. It's a balance that you want to help the young people and you want to support them, but you can't go in with a mindset that you're going to save them.
1: No, no, definitely not. And we talk a (laughs) lot about that. And I think that that's a good use of supervision with mentors to sit with them and help them when they're kind of getting stuck and feeling like, You know, because there are often people who come to this relationship with really wonderful intentions and they feel bad when it's not going well, or they feel like they're not as engaged as they thought they would be, or they call myself or Susan before they call them and they're like, what am I doing wrong? And it's just like, no, no, this isn't about you. Let them have their process, like, you know, be there for them unconditionally.
0: They'll get there, give them Mm -hmm. time. I, I've heard in other mentor programs that sometimes relationships, you know, they get traction right away. And sometimes it takes months yeah, before you really feel like there's traction there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a patience, having patience.
1: Absolutely. And just being okay with, you know, I think because we're privately funded, we're able to individualize our program to meet the needs of the fellows it's really okay. We don't put any pressure on them where it's like, well, you need to do this by this month and this by this time, and you have to meet this many times. We say to them, let it happen naturally. Reach out to them. If they are like, hey, I'm really busy and I just can text this week and I can't meet for coffee, you have the ability to kind of adapt the relationship. Okay. That's good.
0: That's good. I like that. Now, do you have any young people who come back as mentors?
1: So I'd say we have one of our board members is what we would refer to as a launched fellow who is a part of the program. Okay. If he lived locally, I am sure he would Mm -hmm. be a mentor, but he lives in California. Ah, right. But we have a lot of our fellows who are... We refer to them as launched and they're kind of on their own and doing their own thing and they are always willing to connect with new people coming into the foundation. A good example is we had an event in the fall where we met at a park and we had a photographer come out and do family photos for them if they wanted. And we had some fellows that have been around for a really long time and some new referrals that came and we kind of matched them up and we're like, hey, he's a new referral. Like, why don't you let him know? (laughs) But they reach out and they kind of welcome them into we use the term family a lot at the foundation, like, oh, you're a part of the family now. (laughs) You know, here's my number. Call me if you have any questions. And I think that that's a really helpful tool in the relationship building piece of things like another young person who has experienced the things you're experienced, has also worked with this foundation. And they're saying like, no, this is a good thing. We're glad you're here. This is everything that I've accomplished while working with them. That's great.
0: Well, I know that we're coming up on the end of our time together. So I wanted to make sure we had a little bit of time to talk about the foster care system and where there are opportunities for improvements.
1: I have two thoughts. The first one is, it's really a mindset. So it's a little abstract, but It's a saying I use really frequently that youth are the experts in their own lives and not just saying this, but if the child welfare system, the foster care system was really able to create a culture that believes this and creates meaningful opportunities for young people to grow and to have a sense of control over their future. They've spent so much time feeling such a loss of control and not feeling genuine partnerships. So we hear people in the foster care system talk a lot about how strong and resilient young people are. So let's treat them that way. Let's value that resilience. Let's value their life experiences and have genuine partnerships with them. Let go of our need to feel like we need to control them which I think often it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of feeling like we're protecting them. But if we could shift our focus away from that and like us going, but we feel that they believe all of these things, like really allowing them to tell us what they need and focusing on that. And like we do at the foundation that, you know, building of relationships, like you were talking about, I say to staff and mentors all the time, like at the end of the day, All the letters that are at the end of our name don't matter. Like if you can't build trust and genuine relationships with these people, it's all out the door. So I think that just being able to really partner with them would be my biggest thing.
0: What would that look like? Can you think of an example of like something concrete that let's say they're still in foster care? What does partnering with a young person look like in day-to-day life?
1: I think that we often talk about like they have all types of plans, transitional plans, independent living plans, goal plans for therapy. And I think that we often check boxes that look like we are including them and their partners and, you know, it's child-centered and they're at the table. But I think that the action steps and what that looks like after that don't often value their voice. So I think that actively checking in with them, I think that sometimes we don't always bring them to the table as much as we should. We don't communicate what's happening or what's about to happen with them as much as we should. Like I said before, like, I think it comes from a space of being protective and thinking that's what's best for them. But I just can't even imagine growing up in a system where I felt like I didn't know what was going on in my own life and had no say and no voice I work with a lot of people now in the foundation that are fellows that lived in the emergency shelter that I ran a decade ago. And what they talk about now being on the other end of it and their experience of that system is like, I just felt like I didn't know what was happening. I couldn't trust people. I'd show up at court. They would say that this, this, and this is about to happen. But when I got there, no one told me this or no one told me I was going to start having these visits. So I think it's as simple as that communication with them and really allowing them to kind of okay this is what's happening and this is what I think and I think that sometimes we say okay so how do you think we should do this or what should happen and they say what they think but we
0: don't do it. Yeah. So it I'll try to boil it down the system is doing to them as opposed to with them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that we're
1: trying to do with them. I see a lot of good and a lot of change and we're trying to do that, but like authentically doing that sometimes means that we feel uncomfortable when we have to stretch a little bit, but I think that the outcomes of that would make a huge impact.
0: Mm-hmm. I think if young people were in the system, let's say they're 16 mm-hmm. or so, 15, 16, doesn't look like they're going to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they still would be, but maybe that's the trajectory they're going down. That it would make sense to start having those conversations about goals, mm-hmm. right? And helping the young person start having experiences that would get them toward those goals instead of waiting until they're 17, right? And putting them through independent living classes Absolutely. <laughs> and then you know saying, okay, bye-bye. Just like you would with your own family, if you were a young person, I was a total tomboy. If I had an interest in cars at 16 and learning how to fix them, I might have an uncle Or somebody around who would say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to work on my car. Come on over and I'll show you how it's done. You know, you start having those experiences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Whereas so little of that happens when young people are in the foster care system. Absolutely. And maybe that's from the protection perspective, like you're saying.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's also though, just stepping back and not minimizing those little life experiences that you're talking about. You know, that's my thought behind the idea of like meaningful experiences, right? Like they're little things, but giving them an opportunity to really explore, you know, if they're saying, here's my interest, and these are things that I think I'd like to do with my life or that I really enjoy right now, giving them experiences where they can explore that And opportunities to develop competency in those things so they can build their self-esteem and their self-worth. So when it comes time to, say, apply to college and all of the messages they've been given their whole life are, you're not going to go to college. And if you go to college, only 3% of you are ever going to finish that degree. You know, they might have had life experiences that are like, no, like I know that this is something that I want to
0: do with my life. And I've had experiences that have shown me that I can actually do that. And not to be a downer, but actually I've seen research that shows that it's actually closer to 1% for young men and it's a little higher than 3% for young women. I believe. So that 3% is an average. Yeah, yeah. And if you're a young man coming out of the foster care system, it's even more challenging.
1: Yeah, I believe
0: that. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to share about ideas, what we can do to do better by these young people?
1: I just think the other thing that came to mind when you asked me that was this idea of this 3% or 1% or whatever it is, you know, that 70% of foster youth express wanting to go to college before they exit CARE. And I believe, and we really believe at the foundation that them completing high school and them getting into college or workforce development program or some career development program is going to mean far better outcomes. So I really believe that just us sending a message to them while they are still in care, that like they have the potential to do those things, that you can go to college, like helping them to see that for themselves because working on the other side of it Here they are in their mid-20s and we're saying, you can go to college or you can join that career development program and you don't have to do what you're doing right now forever. They're saying to us, no one's ever told me that. Like, I don't believe that. That's not what I've been told in my life. So sending that message to them and then helping, whether it is workforce development programs or universities, to really have support services, which I think we're seeing more and more. I know we're seeing it a lot here in Pennsylvania to have strong support services for them where they can get that full college experience and they can finish their degree and they can feel like they have those support services on campus or at a workforce development program where they know where to turn when those things do get hard because they are going to face more barriers and they will continue to face more barriers while they're there. So strengthening those services there so they can hang in there and finish.
0: Yes. And a couple of other things that cross my mind before we close is helping young people with resiliency to be able to deal with those barriers. Yes. So that they can see the barriers as just that. They're barriers. They're not something that's going to shut you down.
1: Yeah. And I think a part of that is they shut you down when you have no resources or no social capital or no support system. So when you have some of those things, you can probably begin to shift your thinking about barriers as, this is a barrier, and there has to be a solution and an end to this, Mm -hmm. and I can keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, more like a hurdle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then also the mindset of young people that they can achieve these goals. If you don't help young people have that mindset when they're younger, they might give up in the academic part of things. and. Then when they graduate, they might not have the academic preparation and grades to be able to get into a school. Yeah. And I know there are ways around that. I know they can work hard and come back from that, but it makes it that much harder. Absolutely. So we need to communicate that message at a younger age. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, this is a wonderful conversation. I wish we could keep going, but we are at the end of our time. Yeah. So thank you very much, Joel, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed learning about you and learning about the RJ Leonard Foundation. And I'm very excited that you are part of our online community now. I'm very anxious about that growing and helping organizations like yours connect with other organizations to learn from each other. An incredible right? resource, really, truly. Thank you. So, Thank you. We're excited about it. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. I wish you all the best. You're welcome. You're welcome. And for those of you who have listened to the end of the podcast, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and look for the podcast link in the menu. Or you can find us at pretty much any podcast distribution platform. So just look up Aging Out Institute and you'll find us there. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.